to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding dying. Today's text is uh, 1 Peter 1, 13 through 21. If you use the, uh, the blue Bible on the pew or under the seat in front of you, you'll find 1 Peter 1 on page 1014. 1 Peter is one of the last books in the Bible. It follows right after Hebrews and James. And again, that's page 1014. While you're looking it up, um, the, first, the first word in this passage is therefore. And whenever you see the word therefore, you need to ask What's it there for? So I'll give you a little bit of context on this. Uh, Peter is writing to exiled believers. Uh, Up to verse 13, he's told his readers that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we are being protected by God's power for a salvation to be revealed in the last time, that our trials prove the genuineness of our faith, and that we rejoice in this salvation. So, 1 Peter, chapter 1, 13 through 21, the Word of God. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Thanks be to God. Good morning. It's great to, uh, to finally be here. You know, back in uh, April was when we uh, first started thinking about coming to Mansfield, and at that time, we were living in Montana, and Mansfield seemed like quite a long way away. Uh, though we're from Texas, it, was, it would be a homecoming. It was a long way from Billings when we were covered in snow still in April. But it's great to finally be here, and we're so excited to, uh, to be in this great church. We've just been welcomed uh, so warmly since we've been here, and we are just uh, so excited to be uh, partnering with you all to build and extend God's kingdom down into Mansfield. Uh, Before we begin the sermon this morning, let's pray and ask God's help uh, in our endeavors this morning. Our God and our Father, we give you praise that uh, you condescend to us and speak to us in your word. Uh, You are far above us. 
but you uh, are kind to reveal yourself to us. And uh, this morning, as we examine these words in which you've revealed yourself, we pray that you would uh, give us clear minds, uh, give us hearts that are soft and uh, who can receive this word with faith uh, and uh, trusting in your promises. Uh, Comfort us with uh, the promise of the gospel, we pray, in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, Happy New Year, everybody. It's, uh, if you've been reading the newspaper or watching TV or, uh, or listening to the radio at all in the past few weeks, uh, you've probably come across at least a dozen or so pieces or articles about New Year's resolutions and how to keep them. Am I right? Uh, I, the one article that I read was called Solutions for Resolutions. Keep them low this year. Uh, and uh, basically, the point of his article, as you can probably tell from the title, was, you know, don't resolve to do really grand things like learn Swahili this year, because you're probably not going to make it. Uh, instead, like this writer, he resolved to not take up bull riding. Now, that's a, that's a realistic resolution there. You can probably make that happen. Well, the, the reason I bring that up is that uh, every time that a new year rolls around, and, and especially this year because it's the beginning of a new decade, the second decade in this new millennium, uh, you get the sense that people think that when the new year comes, I become a new person. Now, I don't have all the problems that I had just a week or so ago, uh, but now that it's a new year, it's a new decade, I'm a new person. It's as if uh, when the clock strikes midnight on December 31st, that a big reset button gets hit on our life, and, and we're totally brand new. And, you know, that sense tends to carry us a little bit in those first few weeks of January, doesn't it? I mean, at least by now, at least half of you have uh, kept your New Year's resolutions that you make here on January 10th. Uh, at least half of you are sticking to them. But uh, before long, we discover that, you know, I'm still the same old person. <laughs> it may be a new year, but I'm still struggling with the same old things I've always struggled with. For Christmas, Lisa and I got from my mom uh, this P90X workout. Maybe you've seen the infomercials with these dramatic before and after pictures of these people who, you know, they lost 25 pounds and they're sculpted and everything. And we said, hey, that's what we're going to do. We're going to do the diet plan. We're going to do the workout plan. We're going to be at 5 o'clock in the morning before our son wakes up and we're going to do this. And uh, here we are on Sunday, and I think the last day I worked out was Tuesday. Uh, so, Mom, if you're listening, I promise we're going to get back into it. But you know what this is like. You still fight about the same things in your marriage that you fought about a week and a half ago. You still struggle with the same temptations. You still have the same difficult boss, same difficult relationships. And really nothing new has happened just because it's... 2010 on our checks now. Well, Peter's original audience would have uh, been asking, uh, having a similar problem and asking this question. Is there ever any end to this broken cycle of days and weeks and months and years that seems to leave us always wanting for more? Uh, they were experiencing all kinds of verbal persecution from the people they were living with. You know, uh, they had received the good news of Christ And they had rejoiced because they said, wow, this is hopeful, this is great, this is exciting. God is our Savior, and He's come. But then after a while, it got difficult. 
in verse, uh, in chapter 4, Peter speaks to those who have been insulted for the name of Christ. And that's the kind of abuse that they were receiving from all of their neighbors. Uh, accusations against them for being Christians. And Peter, being a, a wise pastor, he knew that week after week, month after month, year after year, of that kind of abuse, people would begin to wonder, is God really real? Are his promises really reliable? Is there ever any hope for anything more other than what I'm receiving right now? Is there ever any end to this broken cycle of days and weeks and months and years? And so Peter, in this passage, he he aims his sights right at that question. And what he does is he reminds these suffering believers, and he reminds us who are in similar places in all of our lives, that hope in the return of Jesus Christ, hope in the return of Jesus Christ is the only source that we have for comfort for the future and strength for the present. That hope in the return of Jesus Christ is hope for the future, is, is comfort for the future, and strength for the present. And uh, Peter tells us three things about that hope that I want us to uh, examine this morning. Uh, first of all, he tells us the object of our hope. In other words, what, what should we be hoping for in our lives? And secondly, he tells us the effects of our hope. Does, it ha- does our hope in, for the future have any effect for the present? And finally, he points us to the author of our hope. And so those are the three things I want us to examine this morning. First of all, let's look at the object of our hope. What should we be hoping for in our lives? Well, look in verse 13. Peter writes, Therefore, we got that nice introduction pointing us back to those truths in verses 3 and 4 that he talked about. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on what? On the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, there are two things I want us to notice about this object of our hope. The first is that it is an otherworldly hope. An otherworldly hope. What do I mean by that? That it's uh, like Avatar, where there's like blue people everywhere, or it's like Star Trek, where it's like far off in the universe. No, what I mean when I say otherworldly, it's not in this text, but uh, it's, it, it means that our hope is not something that is in this old, broken creation that is that has been broken by sin. But it's in the new heavens and the new earth that God has promised to bring when Christ returns. When Peter says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, that's a phrase that's used here and and throughout Scripture to refer to that day when Jesus returns, like he promised. When he says, behold, I'm making all things new. It's an otherworldly kind of hope. And uh, the rest of Scripture tells us that on that day, Jesus will return Everyone will be raised from the dead. Everyone will be judged according to everything that they've ever thought, everything they've ever done, everything they have ever, uh, they've ever desired. And God will put the world right again. But Peter says that we're supposed to focus particularly on the grace that is to be revealed to us on that day. What does that mean? We've already received much of God's grace, haven't we? We've already received the forgiveness of our sins. We've been united to Christ. We're being sanctified by His Holy Spirit. But there's still more, is what Peter's saying. There's still more grace to come for all of us who believe in Jesus Christ, 
We'll receive new bodies on that day that will never be broken again. They will be indestructible. Not only that, but we'll be declared innocent above every, before the whole world. How many people doubt ever their salvation and, and have people tell you that you're not a Christian because you've done this and you've done that and you've done this? Well, on that day, that will all be cleared up. And on the basis of Christ's work, God will say, he is innocent, she is innocent of all wrongdoing because I've washed them clean. And that's the grace that we'll receive in this otherworldly hope on that day. Well, the second thing I want us to notice about that hope is that it is certain. That it's certain. When we use the word hope in our everyday vocabulary, what do we typically mean? We typically mean, I wish, or I'd really like that to happen. You know, on Thursday, all throughout the day, uh, I was thinking and, and saying often, boy, I really hope the Longhorns win the national championship tonight. But as those of you who watched the game found out, that, was a, that turned out to be just a wish, uh, a wishful thinking on my part. Oh, I hope they win, but it turned out to be an empty hope. But in uh, Scripture, sometimes uses the word hope to talk like that. Uh, Paul says, boy, I hope to go to Spain and I hope to see you for realities that he didn't ever experience that we know of. But Peter's using the word hope in a much richer and much deeper way than we use it in our normal vocabulary. What Peter means is that uh, we have a conviction that it is certain. Hope is a conviction that there is a certainty when Jesus Christ returns. It would be like us saying, my hope is that tomorrow is Monday. Now, if you said that, people would look at you funny because it's like, well, of course it's Monday. It's, it's after Sunday. But when we say, my hope is that Jesus is going to return, it's with that kind of certainty that we say it. Um, if you look back in verses, uh, verse 4, Peter refers to this inheritance that, uh, that we have as imperishable. What else does he say? It's undefiled and it's unfading. Kept in heaven for you. It's not, it's not something that we doubt. It's a, it's a reality that will come to pass. Well, how does this apply to us? Knowing the object of our hope. Well, I want you to ask yourself, when I think about the future of my life, what is it that I'm really looking forward to? What do I really want to happen? Before I was married, uh, I have to admit that get, the prospect of getting married or the idea of getting married was what I hoped for. It's what I dreamed about. It's what I thought about all the time. It was, it was as if on my wedding day my life would really begin. I could really start, I could really be a complete human being, finally. But... Uh, and there's certain legitimacy to that. Obviously, it's okay to be excited to be married and to have children and, and to do all these wonderful things that God uh, gives us in this life. But that's not our hope. That's not our hope as Peter's talking about it here. What is it for you? What is it for you that you really long for and you say, that's what I really want in this life? You know, the, the cry of a Christian's heart should be, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. 
But don't we have to admit often that our cry is, but not that quickly. (laughs) Not until I've experienced that or, or done that. But friends, knowing the object of our hope, knowing that it's this otherworldly certain reality, we can say, no matter what happens in this life, no matter what I experience or don't experience, no matter what joys I get to have, no matter what sorrows I have, I have something that can never be taken away from me. That's the hope of eternal life with Christ, to see him face to face. And Peter calls us to set our hope fully on that, fully on that life that's to be brought to us then. Now, I know what you're thinking. Sure, Pastor, that, that's great. I'm glad I've got this, this great thing coming to me in the future. But I've got issues now. I've got problems here and now that I have to face tomorrow. When you said my hope is tomorrow is Monday, yeah, that's, that's my dread because I've got to go back to work. I've got I, I to go look for work. My mortgage is due. My kid's college tuition is due. Does my hope in the future make any difference now? And Peter shows us, friends, that uh, our hope, that Christian hope, genuine Christian hope is not pie in the sky by and by, as they often say. This thing that I'm going to get later on, and uh, boy, boy, it's great then, but life really stinks. No, he says that our hope in the future has tremendous consequences for the present. Let's examine how as we look at the effects of our hope. Uh, when my wife Lisa was pregnant with, our, uh, with Liam, um, we were reading all the pregnancy books, you know, what to expect, when you're expecting, and all of those things. And uh, one of the things they talked about was a nesting instinct. Have you heard of this before? Nesting instinct? Uh, it, for those of you who haven't, what it means is that for like a wood, for a uh, soon-to-be mom, uh, when she knows that the baby is getting close, it's on its way, that she just gets busy cleaning everything in the house. And I'm talking preparing everything for the arrival of this baby. And we kind of read those things at the beginning of the pregnancy and thought, well, well, we'll see. Um, and uh, about a month before Liam was born, I had to go away for a few days for presbytery. And when I came back, the guest room that, had, that was a guest room when I left uh, was a full-fledged nursery. And I'm talking like portraits that have been handcrafted and made by my wife and uh, hung on the walls, uh, pictures that have been printed out and hung on string around the uh, thing, the crib put together, the clothes washed, put in the drawers, uh, diapers out, ready to go, wipes ready to go. We're still a month away, mind you. Uh, b- the baseboards in the house had been wiped all down, so in case he was crawling around and getting in the dirty stuff, uh, he'd be safe. So if, if there are any skeptics out there whether the, nurse, the, the nesting instinct exists, it does. Uh, because when she, when she knew that it was coming, she was getting ready for him. But this text shows us that something similar happens to Christians as we learn about this great hope that we have. Um, those who have this profound hope can't help but look, cannot look at this life that we live now with indifference. But instead, we will strive for holiness uh, in this life. You see, there's often a misconception of Christianity that says, if I want hope in the future... If I want it to be really certain, 
I got to be really good now. I got to really try hard now so that I can guarantee a life for the future, so that I can really please God. But this passage teaches the exact opposite, friends. It teaches that those who have a certain future, those who have been guaranteed grace, abundant grace by God in the future, are those who work most tirelessly now to live for God. Well, how does that work? Let's look in our passage. Uh, Hope affects the way we think. Look in verse 13 again. Peter says, preparing your minds for action. If we were to translate this phrase literally, what it would say is, gird up the loins of your mind. And the, the image that Peter wants us to get is, uh, is like that of the Exodus, when uh, the, everyone in the house was told to uh, tie up their robes in between their legs and tuck them into their belts so that when God commanded for them to go, they could go immediately. Be ready to run, we might say in our, uh, in our common vocabulary. And he says that that's what should take place in our minds for those of us who have this hope. We, should, we shouldn't be caught sleeping. We should be vigilant, ready to hear God's word and to act at any point. He also says we're to be sober-minded. And of course, that includes a literal sobriety, but it includes more than that. It includes looking at this world for the way that it really is and not some distorted version of it that... Um, like, like alcohol would do to your mind, literally, uh, spiritual uh, drunkenness can do the same. It can distort our perspectives, and we, we won't act uh, according to the way we should. So it affects the way we think, but it also affects what we desire. Look in verse, uh, verses 14 and 17. In 14, Peter writes, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That is, when you didn't know about this hope, when you didn't know God, there were passions that went with that. There were desires that came with that. And when we didn't know God, we lived for the things that were not God. We lived for the things of this world. We had passions for them and desires for them. But notice that he says it's, it's our former ignorance. It's an ignorance that we don't have anymore because God has enlightened our minds and there are new passions that come with that. New desires that come with having this great hope of everlasting life. And then he adds in verse 17, uh, he says, Conduct yourselves with fear. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear that word, it's, it sounds kind of negative. <laughs> it sounds, oh, am I supposed to be scared of God? I thought you were saying that he's going to give me grace in the future. Well, what Peter means when he says fear is, is, is a reverent submission before God. It means those of us who have this great hope can now ask this question whenever we get in, whenever we're tempted to sin. We can say, where is God in our life? Where is God in the, in the whole picture of my life? What has he done for me in Jesus Christ? Remember those truths. What, what does he call me to do now? As my father and, and, as, and I as one of his children, what, what does he want me to do? Uh, that, that's what it means to live uh, with fear before God, asking, where is he in my life? And, and that can only come when we have new desires that come with this hope. But hope also not only affects the way, our, the way we think and affects the way we desire or what we desire, 
but it also affects our behavior. Look in verses 14 and 15. He writes, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Now I want you to, to see this. Uh, the, the hope that we have connects us into a life-giving relationship with a holy God. Connects us into a life-giving relationship with a holy God. And because He is holy, because the God who owns you is holy, because the God who bought you is holy, He transforms His people into holy people. It's because of that relationship with God that Peter can write, uh, quoting from Leviticus 11, uh, there in our passage, You shall be holy as I am holy. You shall be holy as I am holy. Uh, This means that what we worship, we end up taking on the characteristics of that. And when we worship God, that's the image into which we're being conformed. That's the model after which our lives are being uh, uh, transformed. So far from being this distant, far-off, irrelevant reality, Christian hope, friends, is is a hope that has tremendous consequences for right now. That hope shapes the way we live, the way we think, the way we desire. C.S. Lewis, uh, a great Christian theologian and writer, philosopher, uh, grasped this truth when he wrote this well-known quote. He said, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Isn't that amazing? We often hear, you can be too heavenly minded and be what? No earthly good. (laughs) But the scriptures teach us the exact opposite. It is those who are most heavenly minded. It is those who are most secure in what God is bringing to them. Who can say to this life, you know, my instinct to to preserve myself, to grab for the things of this world, to be bitter and to say, you know what, I'm going to distance myself from people, I'm going to be after number one. We don't have to do that anymore. You don't have to save your life here because God's already guaranteed your life in the future. What guarantee do we have that this is not just wishful thinking? What guarantee do we have that this is not, as uh, Karl Marx said, the opiate for the masses? In other words, a drug that's just administered by pastors uh, to their congregations that keeps them happy and giving uh, throughout their Christian lives. It's not just a story that people tell a myth that's been, passed, that's been passed down. As many, if you read Time Magazine, you read Newsweek, you watch TV on Easter and Christmas, that's what they'll tell you. It's a myth, and there's no guarantee to this. What guarantee do we have that it's actually true? And more than that, if it is true, what guarantee do we have that we will actually receive grace on that day? To really examine our lives, we say, you know what? When Christ returns, it could go either way. You know, if, if, if I'm really going to be judged on all of my thoughts, all of my actions, 
uh, all of everything that I've, I've ever said could be ugly. What guarantee do we have that when he returns, we're actually going to be recipients of mercy and grace? Well, friends, the only way that we can know the answers to, the, to those questions with the kind of certainty that Peter wants us to have and that God wants you to have is to know the author of your hope. It's to know the author of your hope. See, the truth is, if it's up to us, it's up, if it's up to us to guarantee our hope, the only guarantee that we have is that we will not make it. That can be guaranteed. But on the other hand, if God in Christ is the one who's built our hope and the one who holds our hope and the one who guarantees our hope, then it is guaranteed never to fail. And that's exactly where Peter points us. That's exactly where he draws our minds in at least half of this passage is about the author of our hope. 18 through 21 points us to God himself as the author of our hope. Let's look at it. How can we know that we'll receive grace on that day and that we're not just going to drift away into what he calls futile ways inherited from our forefathers? Number one, because God the Father planned our hope. He planned it. Look in verse 20. Uh, He says that he, referring to Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. What Peter's saying there is that God the Father foreknew Jesus Christ. And that doesn't mean that he just knew who he was or that he just, uh, uh, just had some bare knowledge, but that he chose him. He set him apart. He selected him to be the Savior of his people. And so, friends, God planned it out. This wasn't plan B. It wasn't a, an alternate route. It wasn't like Jack Bauer gets caught off, caught off guard and he has to uh, weasel his way and, and get something uh, happened on, at the spur of the moment. It's not a Christmas Eve kind of gift where you're rushing around the mall at 5.30, the gates are closing, and you're trying to get those last-minute gifts for the people you love. No, this is something that God planned from the very beginning. He planned our salvation before he even made the world by setting Jesus Christ apart for you. But not only did he plan it, and like many of us, botch our plans, he carried it out. He planned it and he secured it by carrying it out in the person of Jesus Christ Look in verse 21. Peter says, He was made manifest in the last times. That word manifest means become visible. And what Peter's saying is, on that day, in the last times, the invisible God became visible by taking on a human nature, by taking on flesh that you could see, that you could touch, that you could guarantee was there. And so God took on our human nature, the same human nature that's broken and, and, and tattered and living in futile ways, pointless ways. And not only did he come into this world, but he gave up his own life, as Peter says, to ransom us. Friends, what, what, that, mean is, what's, what that means is that our sin puts us in bondage. It locks us up and that there is a debt that must be paid if we are going to be ever free from it. 
that naturally we, we live in these ways that are futile, that are leading nowhere, that are meaningless, that are empty. But Peter says, Jesus Christ paid that price for you. He ransomed you. He bought you. He owns you now. And he didn't pay with pocket change. He didn't pay with a budget surplus. But he paid with the most precious thing to God the Father, and that is the blood of his own son. That's the price he paid for us because that's the, that's the penalty that was due. That's what he paid. And he secured that hope on the third day when Jesus Christ rose from the dead and proved to us in a tangible, historical reality that what he said was true, that his death was valid for you and for me. When he, was, when he raised from the dead, that's the reality that we can look to and, and say, that secures my hope. And finally, we, know, we can know that we'll receive grace on that day because God has given us the, the ability to believe in these promises. In other words, it's not you, it's not your own strength that, that keeps you hanging on, but it's God's strength that keeps you hanging on. Look at what Peter says in verse 21. He refers to us as those who, through him, are believers in God. Did you know that? Did you know that it's not you who decided, hey, I'm going to believe in God, and, and I really hope that tomorrow I believe, and I really hope that the next week I believe. No, Christ gives us the ability to believe. And he will continue to give us the ability to believe because he bought us. He paid for us. And he's not going to let you slip through the cracks. And as if we had any doubt in our minds, as if we had any doubt that that this was for us, he reminds us that all the planning, the sending, the dying, the ransoming, the rising again was all done, he says in verse 20, for the sake of you, for your sake. He didn't do it just for people in general, but he did it for us, for his church, for his people. Well, finally, what does this mean for us? What difference does it make that God is the author of our hope? Well, friends, if God is the author of our hope, then we're not. If God's the author of our hope, then we're not. And that truth cuts both ways. It cuts to two different kinds of people. It speaks to those of us who look at our lives and we say, there is no way that I can have a guaranteed hope. I've done too many bad things. I've been uh, screwed up too many relationships. I have messed up my life so badly that there's no chance that I could ever have a hope like that. I'm so broken, and and there's no way that God could ever do it. Whether you profess to be a believer or not, you could be in that, in, that, uh, in that state saying, you know, I just messed up. There's no way I can do it. But the fact that God is the author of your hope, friends, reminds you that that doesn't matter. He's paid for you, and there's no more payment to be made. He's paid the debt that frees you from your sin, both the guilt of it and the power of it. And there's nothing more for you to pay. But this truth cuts to a different group of people as well. It cuts to those of us, and, and I'm in this category, that, says, that never doubt the certainty of our hope because we never doubt our, our, our deserving of it. 
We never doubt that God will give us grace because we think we're pretty good people. I've been a good person. I've, I've done good things this week. And of course God is going to give me hope. But and whether you are a believer who thinks that or a non-Christian uh, who, who doesn't profess Jesus Christ and you think, boy, you know, I, I've done a pretty good job. I, this, this hope sounds good. I think I've earned it. This truth that God is the author of our hope reminds us, friends, that we can never be good enough, we can never be obedient enough, we can never be strong enough to earn this hope for ourselves. But God is the one who has to make it. And God is the one who's promised to do it. And so if wherever you are in, in either of those categories, friends, the answer is the same. It's to, it's to leave behind all of our efforts and all of our attempts to try to make ourselves good enough to, to have hope this year and to place our faith in Jesus Christ, who alone can bring us eternal, sure hope from his work. Amen? Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we thank you so much for the hope that you have guaranteed for us in the work of Christ. We thank you that uh, you stand behind it and your promises are always sure. We pray that you would give us strength to not only believe that hope, but to uh, live in light of it, to, to strive to think and to desire and to uh, act in accordance with it in our lives uh, this week. And we pray that it would be for your glory. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain, break radiant through shades of night and chase my fears away won't you chase my fears away